Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Being a parent can be really challenging. Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them on their parenting journey. Everyone deserves someone they can turn to for help with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. Being a parent can be really challenging. It's normal to feel uncertain about whether you're doing the right things to raise healthy and happy children. That's why Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them build confidence in their parenting journey. Everyone deserves to have someone they can turn to for support with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. Special Operations, Covert Ops, Espionage, The Team House, with your hosts, Jack Murphy and David Park. We are here today. This is uh, episode 93. We are with Peter McAleese author of No Mean Soldier. I read it this week, really enjoyed it. Peter is an amazing guy. He, he served in 22 SAS in Aden and Borneo. He served as a mercenary in Angola with Fenla. He served in the Rhodesian Special Air Service doing cross-border operations, and then with 44 Pathfinder Company in South Africa. And then finally, he was also hired to assassinate Pablo Escobar in Colombia in 1989. So Peter has le- lived a hard mean and sometimes violent life but his book is also filled with self-reflection somebody who changed and was changed by his participation in many of these conflicts and i hope to talk about this all of this with you tonight peter okay go ahead (laughs) you had a tough life growing up in glasgow um living in poverty uh could you tell us a little bit about your upbringing and what kind of got you introduced to the military um, my upbringing was, it was, it was fairly hard. Um, my father was, uh, an extremely aggressive person. And, uh, if you did something wrong, you got beaten first and the inquiry came later, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, he, all I can say is he didn't know any better, but, um, I suppose he tried in his way and it never worked. Um, I I went to a good school, St. Thomas's School. It was a Catholic school there. And nuns taught me. Very, very strict. Um, and I, I really enjoyed life. Uh, when I was young, I, I enjoyed the freedom it gave me. I just didn't have any home life. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I was released in the morning when I got out, I just took off and I... I used to go along canals and swing on bridges and do all the things I love to do, you know. And uh, 
if correct me if I'm wrong, if I read your book a little bit wrong, but it sounded like your father participated in some sort of like bare knuckles boxing as gambling that you used to go and watch. No, what happened was my everything where I came from was settled by men fighting. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's how you settle scores. It, it wasn't. That's just the way it was. It was natural to us. Uh, my father got sort of dethroned as the as the local hard man, and my grandfather didn't take it too well. So he put him into a, a training regime to get ready for the comeback fight. And I, uh, I sneaked on top of a, a slag heap and got myself on t- top of a little hill and I actually watched the fight itself. And uh, it was very, very funny because um, the, my father floored the guy and his brother went to pull out a knife and then he evinced the brother got stabbed with a bayonet and then there was a load of miners uh, all fighting with each other. It was like something out of a cowboy movie. You know, everybody was battling. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, you said that you know, you pulled out a knife, but you, when you said that like men handled things by fighting back then, was there a sense of when the fight in general, was there a sense of when the fight was over, it was over? Um, you know, you know what, what happened was when it was settled, there was no animosity after it. You know, the, if it was in the pub on a Saturday night, the normal thing was a comeback in the Sunday morning, or else when one of the people were fit again. Uh, but the, once the person uh, had been beaten a fight, it was accepted. Yeah. And the, the, the pecking order sorted itself out again. Yeah. Yeah. I, I should just, I'm sorry for a little uh, uh, caveat just for our viewers. I should have mentioned, this is a pre-recorded episode, so um, v- we're not going to be able to take viewer questions. And, and that's as a courtesy uh, for Mr. McAleese here. He's in a different time zone over there in the U.K., um, we want to keep him up. Yeah, today, no, so. certainly. And so your father was also in the military and he was uh, in and out of prison from the way you just talk about it in your book. He was always getting into trouble, always getting into fights. Yes. Um, my father joined the military and uh, he finished up in the Royal Welsh Fusiliers. Uh, he was a Scotsman and he didn't take too well with it, you know. Um, he was constantly in the military prison, which there was military prisons within the main prison system in Scotland. And uh, he spent an awful long time in there. And, you know, basically what happened during the war, if you went in 19, if you joined the army in 1939, when the war finished, you go in 45. If you went in 40, you go in 46. And it carried on until 1948. Uh, my father came out in 1952 <laughs> <laughs> yeah. because he paid back all his jail time. <laughs> and so you yeah. follow you followed in your father's footsteps as a as a way to escape your uh, a way to escape your neighborhood in Glasgow, also to, a way to escape poverty, I, I suppose. What was it that attracted you to the paras and to the SAS and to these elite units? Well, I, I watched a movie on the Paras and I was very, very taken with it, you know. And it was in the cinemas all over Glasgow. And uh, I followed it all over the place. It was just, I was fascinated by parachuting. And uh, I remember one day, is it okay to swear? Yes, absolutely. 
Back in A. <laughs> I remember one day I seen this paratrooper walking down the road and he, he looked fantastic. You know, he was well, he carried himself extremely well. His boots were highly built, you know, and he just had something about him. And I kept following him down the street just to see him with his red berry and whatnot. And he eventually turned around and he says, what the fuck are you doing following me? <laughs> I was just mesmerized by the guy. <laughs> what did you say to him? I mean... No, I, I just said, you know, I, I, I said, are you a paratrooper, mister? You know, and that, that sort of um, calmed it down a bit. You know, he, he just couldn't get, he couldn't get his head around why I was following them all over, all over the streets, you know. <laughs> and so yeah. a few years go by and you find yourself there yourself. I mean, before long, you're in, you're in the SAS yourself. And in those days, yeah. bouncing between Aiden and Borneo, and I was wondering if you could yeah. tell us about these two conflicts that you were bouncing in between. Um, Borneo was, was mainly a reconnaissance and, and reporting back uh, to the military. The, uh, the infantry done an awful lot of heavy stuff there, but we were mainly a reconnaissance, checking out routes, checking out the border area and whatnot. So it was, as I say, it was... It was. It wasn't exciting. Uh, trigger on on the trigger. If you understand what I mean, mm-hmm. uh, Aiden was different. Uh, we were fighting against dissident tribesmen there, who were good at long distance fighting. They weren't too good at the close up stuff. And I found myself in a, a situation one night where uh, we'd taken off and we were walking down this wadi. I think it was called the wadi Bila, and. Uh, the troop sergeant said to me, he says, Peter, there's, there's, some, uh, there's some shepherds down there. And, um, and I looked and I could see the way they were sleeping. I said, they're not shepherds. And uh, one of them shot the troop sergeant. And then I, I shot him and then all hell let loose. And, uh, and it was funny because, you know, I killed the guy who killed the, the troop sergeant and the rest of the troop moved up. And I think we killed another three. Um, but it, somebody threw something at me, and I thought it was a brick, and it landed in between my, my legs. And uh, the next morning, uh, when we were sort of clearing the area, it was a, an old British hand grenade, the old 36 grenade. And the guy had thrown it, and it had landed on a rock and split open. And only the detonator had gone off, so... Oh. You know, I, I felt I'd extremely lucky person that day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What? Yeah, uh, Peter, around what what year are we talking right now to give our viewers sort? We're talking about uh, sixty five through to sixty seven. Okay. And you also participated in one of the first freefall drops in Aiden, which I thought was fascinating. Yeah. Uh, basically, what happened now? If I had to tell a modern day freefaller. What we did, he'd, he'd bust out laughing. But you've got to take it into consideration. We didn't, we, we were in the, in the infancy with free, free fall. Mm-hmm. So what we did is uh, we get two scout helicopters and uh, there was three in each helicopter and uh, we stood on the skids of the helicopter as he was flying in and he gave us the okay and we all jumped together. So there was no stacking type of thing. And you know, everybody, <laughs> if we'd have bumped into each other, we'd have, we'd have definitely been for the broth pot, you know. Uh, 
<laughs> it, and these these are the old uh, round parachutes too, right? Well, in actual fact, the parachutes we had were American Tojos. We borrowed them to do this uh, to do some training, and we sneaked them out to Aden. Now, when we did the RV after the jump, one of the guys had gone too far out, and he planted his shoe uh, his shoe underneath a bush. And the next morning after the ambush. Um, we said, where's your, where's your parachute? He says, it's under a bush, and the whole place was covered in bushes. <laughs> so we had to, it took us a couple of hours to find the parachute, So because they had to go back to the Americans, you know. Oh, yeah. I see. It had to be returned. That's funny. <laughs> so you you guys free-falled in, or, or free-falled in? It was, at one, it was at one o'clock in the morning, um, and we there was a full moon. As, as I say, we stood on the skids and the pilot shouted, go. And I mean, I mean it, we didn't know what we were doing. It was, it was a case that we wanted to try it out and we went for it. And uh, to a certain extent, it worked. But nowadays, you know, now that we've got more sense, we'd have jumped one at a time. <laughs> so, yeah. so you guys tried this jump or you experimented with free fall on a combat operation. Yeah. There it was an go. operational jump. Yeah, it was uh, it was the it was an insertion really, you know, that we, we were trying to get a hold of this terrorist called uh Mohammed al Maghrabi al Hoshabi, you know. And he he was reputed to travel down this track twice a week or something and we we bushwhacked it, you know. And, yeah. and at the same time that you were learning about, you know, as a young soldier, learning about desert warfare in Aden, you were learning about jungle warfare in Borneo, uh, which I thought was very interesting going between the two. It was, it was funny because it's the exact opposite. We'd do, a, we'd do four months in Aden, four months in Borneo, four months at home retraining. And we kept that circle up for about three years. Wow. Um. And um, as I say, uh, you know, the, it was interesting. It was good, but the, and we got to know the areas as well as the people we were fighting. Can you see that? More so in Aden, because the whole thing boiled around having water. You know, we started to know where water was and, and, and various holes and whatnot. That's, that's amazing. So, you enlisted. Did you go straight to the Paris? How did the military work at that time? The military worked at that time um, that you went straight into the Paris before you had to join another regiment. But I caught it when they changed over. And uh, I got there and I was really taken by the place, you know. And this corporal came along and he, he got a hold of me and he said, come on, son, let me show you things. And he, he showed, to, showed me how to... Uh, fold my kit, you know, how to lay it out in the locker, what went where, showed me how to iron my kit. He, he taught me everything. I, but I already knew a lot of it. But as I say, I, I wrote a letter home to my mother. And I says, Mother, now don't forget, I'm only 17. I said, um, Mother, the corporal's my best friend. <laughs> <laughs> the corporal had been helping me and understanding me on the first day of training the door opened and a dustbin <laughs> tore down the centre of the floor. And they start, this, this guy had been 
it looked as if he'd gone insane. <laughs> <laughs> and, the, and the shock to the system was sort of phenomenal, you know. Um, it carried on like that for about 10 weeks uh, and eased up for a bit. And then, you know, it was mainly just getting us ready to be professional soldiers. Mm-hmm. And they were good at it. They were, they were good. It's just that with the... At first, to me, it, it appeared like some some form of insanity. It was like a scene out of one flew over the cuckoo's nest, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it, it it bears mentioning also that you were quite a, an energetic, rambunctious young soldier, and you you got bounced between the SAS and the Paras a couple times during those early years. Yeah, I was a. I'd use a term they use in the country. I was a, I, I was a bit punchy. <laughs> um, you know, and um, I got into an awful lot of fights. You know, I, I won some, I lost some. Um, and um, it, it, it stayed with me for a long time and it caused me problems, mm-hmm. which I never, I never actually really solved till after I left the army. And, uh, you know, as I say, when I, get, I, I came out of the army again, I had an awful lot of trouble as well. But it was just it was a, a learning process all the way through until I learned to come to terms with myself, you know. Yeah. You you talk a little bit about, you know, at, at, like you said, after your initial stint in the Army, there were some dark years there where you yourself were in and out of prison. Um, I, was a, I was constantly getting into trouble and fighting with people. And, <laughs> you know, I used to get involved with the police and then finish up fighting with them. And, you know, when you you you, you get involved along those lines, you know, the, you're, you're onto a loser, you know. <laughs> yeah. Do you, do you and, think uh, they... I'm sorry. Do you, do you think they... They up for a bit, but they, later on they used to just bring a dog with them and just let the dog sit about <laughs> me, you know. <laughs> um, yeah. Do you, do you think that that came from your father did it come from that's because that's how people solved their problems where you grew up i think it, some of it came from my dad but that's the way people were in glasgow you know it was normal it's a, it was a subculture yeah mm-hmm. um, and you know i look back now and uh it's fantastic you know i can sit there and, and talk something through with a guy whereas when you're younger you're sitting in the pub and you know that you can see a disagreement is starting, and then chairs start moving back, where the two guys are getting ready to sort of tackle each other. It was just the way it was in Glasgow. You know, the those parts of Glasgow were extremely um, posh districts, but you know where I came from is uh, it was just normal. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't nobody would lose any sleep over it. Right. Right. Yeah. So when when you were with the Paras and then the SAS and then back and forth. Were, was it guys on your team that you would get have conflicts with, or was it like townies, or how? Like, what would get you in trouble generally? Um, it was mainly uh, when I had alcohol in me. I used to be. I could never hold drink. I mean, I stopped drinking about eight years ago, and it, you know my life is just fantastic. Um, I just couldn't hold it, and uh, I would get aggressive. Um, and finish up, you know, trying to solve things the way the people sold them from the district I came from. I, you know, it never dawned on me that, you know, there was 
many cultures within the UK. Um, and as I say, I got myself into an awful lot of trouble, but um, the great saying is, if you can't pay the price, don't roll the dice. And, and I rolled the dice and I had to pay the price. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, I, I mean, if, if I could meet the judge that actually sent me to prison, I would shake his hand. In that he looked at it, I don't think it was done in a malicious way. It was done that I think this guy needs some breathing space. I think he needs some time to get his head together. And it did exactly that. That's that's interesting because that was after your time in the army, right? Yes. Yeah. And, a, and a lot of guys kind of like, not a lot of guys, but some people like figure that out in the army or, or that's where they learn it. But but your army life was kind of plagued with some some issues because you still had that sort of trigger. Oh, yeah. You, you know, look, um, you can't, I was never, ever sanctioned for being a bad soldier. I was a badly behaved soldier. Two right. things, two different things. You know, you get these people say he's a bad soldier. Uh, well, oh, I'm I, sorry, I, go I, ahead. I, 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 my defense to that is I was a badly behaved soldier. Right. I was never, I always gave it, I gave soldiers my all and I enjoyed it and I got one, one hell of a reward from being a soldier. Yeah. And and so and how how long were you like how long were you in the military? I did nine years in the British Army. Okay. And then I came out. And then I went to work then I worked on pipelines, oil rigs, you know, I drifted to and fro. And then I got contacted to go go and get involved in the Angolan Civil War. And could you talk to us about that next, about getting recruited to go fight with Fenwa and the, the mayhem that really ensued down in Angola? What was this, 1976? Yeah. Uh, basically, a guy got in contact with me, and he asked me if I wanted to go, and I said yes. I mean, I'd, I always miss the, the the scrapping side of the army, you know. Um, and I, he says, well, be the... He gave me the name of a hotel at Heathrow Airport, and we met up there. And uh, I got in an aircraft and flew out to Ndili Airport in Zaire. But it was really funny because I left Heathrow Airport as a, as, as a troopie, and by the time I landed in Ndili, I was a captain. <laughs> That's what you call... You know, fast promotion. Yeah, it is. That's fast tracking <laughs> for sure. <laughs> but you know, it was just this mercenary thing. Everybody was all calling themselves by fancy ranks, you know. Um, and I got approached uh, by one reporter, and they kept calling me Colonel. And I said, "Look, I think you better stop." Um, the highest rank I ever held in the army was a staff sergeant, and. Uh, I've never had a commission, so please don't call me. For this time, I'm a colonel. I said, please don't. I was embarrassed by it all. I said, look, I'm just the guy in charge, you know. <laughs> I, I thought it was very interesting how you talk about in your book that, you know, you, you become a, a mercenary leader, let's call it what it is, down in Angola, and you're kind of put as, like, the trustee of an entire town and charged with, like, protecting it, and you're, you're like the mayor trying to take care of these people. 
I get down there and I landed there and I couldn't believe it. The the FNLA soldiers were bullying the people, uh, taking food off them. Um, the hospital had collapsed. Uh, you know, there was, there, there was no medical kit. There was nothing. Um, and the army just in general were bullying the people. And when the fish boats came in with the, the, to, with the food and the, the fish, it was taken away by, by army guys. And I, I says, I better control this. And uh, I really enjoyed it. It was very, very rewarding. I, I found an old day. There was an old ship line out there and it was loaded with medical supplies. So I brought them in. And um, I um, got the hospital sorted out, and then you know they, they started, you know, started working well, you know. And how how many other, um, I don't, for lack of a better word, how how many other mercenaries did you have with you? I had a six, six. And how did you keep the ethanolic soldiers from like? Taking the medical supplies, taking the food, things like that. How did you sort it out? Well, what I did, I chose an awful lot of guy, big guys who were super bullies. And I made them the MPs. <laughs> so they had the rest of them terrorized. <laughs> and that, that's, a, that's a good uh, point there, Dave. Uh, and the other thing to talk about down in Angola, you know, Peter... You kind of ruled with a, a bit of an iron fist with some of these disciplinary issues. And you can see how that was needed because there was this madman down there, Callan. Being a parent can be really challenging. It's normal to feel uncertain about whether you're doing the right things to raise healthy and happy children. That's why Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them build confidence in their parenting journey. Everyone deserves to have someone they can turn to for support with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. And, and who was the other? Copeland, I think it was. Could you tell us the story? Could you tell us the story about these two guys? I mean, really, they were war criminals. Yeah, well, uh, I um, I went to a place called uh, San Antonio Desire, and um, and Holden Roberto came in to see me, and he explained that the situation had got out of hand, and um, and could I uh, go and sort it out because they'd killed a lot of people at a place called Makella, and um, I'd met Callan briefly beforehand. And it takes an awful lot to make me scared. But with this guy here, I was very, very wary of him. Mm -hmm. uh, you could see that he, he could just turn. And then anyway, I said, right, okay. Uh, I'll go up and I'll arrest him and we'll sort it out from there. So um, I flew up to McKellar and I seen a vehicle coming. And my heart was pounding. And I think I've, de I've described it is I know how Jesus felt in the Garden of Gethsemane. <laughs> 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 he 
because um, my heart was really pounding, and I said, hey, "You know how am I going to tackle this man?" But I'd I'd volunteered to do the job, and as it happened, he'd been captured. So there was Sammy Copeland there, and a couple of others, and I I did my best to take, get the situation in hand. They they held like a kangaroo court for them, didn't they? Well, it was as close as we could get to trying to do something properly. Mm. They've got to understand that the, the place was, it was chaos. Yeah. Um, you, you know, the the group that Callan was with, it was, there was absolutely, they, they were just like bandidos. Um, right, right. There was, an awful lot of, there was an awful lot of good men there, but they were shit scared. Um, and I got there and I, I spoke to people and I, I said, we better do this, try and do it properly. And the, and the aim was to find out what actually went happened. It was an inquiry, really. And, you know, there was one guy there kept saying, you know, he should be shot. And I said, shut up, you know. And Sammy Copeland, his, he, he, it just must have been too much from, and he made a dash for it and somebody shot him. And that was a long and, uh, long and short of that story. But we we did try. When you talk about a kangaroo court, having been in trouble in the army as well, I had a fair idea. Peter, can you, for our viewers who may not be familiar with it and haven't had a chance to read your book yet, can you sort of tell us a little bit about right, the goal right. at the time? What was going on? Who brought you in? Why they brought you in? And what the intent? Was. And, and and what what Callan and Copeland had done because yeah. they they were guilty of some really heinous yeah, crimes. Who they were and what yeah. they had done. Yeah. Um, basically, um, I was approached to, to to go there, and as I say, I got to Ndili Airport. We were met by Holden Roberto. We drove down to Angola uh, into one of the towns there, and uh, I met Callan there. And uh, he suggested, well, he was the guy in charge, so I didn't, I didn't want to question it because it was, you know, he'd been there before me and Holden Roberto seemed to hold some faith in him. So he then said, I want you to get down to San Antonio Desire and, and run the situation there. Um, as I say, when I was down there, I got an awful lot of job satisfaction out of sorting things out in the town. And then Holden Roberto came down to see me. And he said, things are getting out of hand at, um, at McKellar. There has been murders, there's been massacres. Uh, he's even shot some of his own men. And uh, I want you to go up and sort it out. And uh, so as I say, I flew to McKellar. And I said, I better not... Um, Russian here with the head down. So I said, right, what has happened? They say they've killed, I think it was 13 or 14 guys. I said, where are they? So a driver took me out and he drove up this sort of re-entrant. And as we were getting to the top of it, he says, it's about here somewhere. I said, it's here. And I got out of the truck and I walked and I could smell the death, you know. Um... I remember one guy was there and he was holding a bush and he'd been shot through the back of the head. And I said, who did this? And he said, Sammy Copeland. You know, I don't know, Sammy Copeland had a reputation for being a good soldier. 
but I think he'd fallen under the the, the spell of Callum, and uh, he started, you know, he he just lost it. And uh, as I say, holding the birth, says I want this sorted out. And as I say, I got back to McKellar. I spoke to all the men. I interviewed them all, so as I could get, you know, the the truth of what happened because. There was a lot of them wanted to get out of there as quick as they can, yeah. Because they had enough of it, or uh, as quick as they could. Sorry, and uh, so I, I then held a court of inquiry, and that's when Sammy, Sammy, uh, Sammy Copeland bolted, right, and got himself shot. I looked at the men. I'd seen this massacre. I looked at the men. It was something like a sight out of the First World War, they were black underneath the eyes. They were, you know, they couldn't look in the eye. They, were, they said, I think they thought, here comes another madman. And lucky enough, my cousin was among the group. And I said to him, I said, you better go and talk to these guys. Tell them that, you know, this is not a, a repeat of what's going on. So he calmed them down a bit. And I, I went, these men are no good. They've lost it. They've given up. We're, we're so I spoke to Holden Roberto and I said, get these guys out of here. Yeah. They're no good. Now, were these, all these people you're talking about, Cullum and Copeland and then their men, were they also part of the, the mercenary effort? Were they also Westerners? Yeah, they, uh, it was all, all, all guys from those Americans, uh, some Portuguese, uh, mainly Brits, a couple of Australians. Um, yeah. And who who brought the mercenaries into Angola at that time? Was it the government or was it? No, no, the government had nothing to do with it. You know, it was, it was a guy called Nick Hall who knew Callan. Callan had spoke to Holden Roberto and he said, the answer is get some white men out here and we can sort the situation out. So there was this sort of mass recruiting done without any background checking, can you see it? Yeah. Uh, the idea was to get numbers out there, and some of those guys, you know, they, they should have forgotten all about it. They, they just, you know, you can get a man who's a good regular soldier, but when you get into that mercenary game, it's brutal. Right, yeah. And sometimes, you know, the the discipline isn't what you're used to in a regular army. And then Callan met his fate ultimately at the hands of Unida, right? Yeah. I know of the MPLA. Oh, the MPLA. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. Um, I, I'm going to push a little bit forward if that's cool. Yeah, um, I was just curious. Who was paying, I mean, just again, who was paying for the mercenaries there to, to help well, restore what, order? I just, there was American money involved. Okay. In the beginning, the Americans had um, CIA. Financing it, and they thought it's going to come right. But the minute that massacre was done by Callan, yeah, they, they just withdrew. They said, "We've got to get out of here." Yeah, and they were helpful guys. I mean, I, I spoke to some of those men, and were good men. And I says, "Look, you can't leave us like this." And and actual fact, they broke the rules and actually helped us out as they were leaving. Can you see that? Mm -hmm. And one thing I, I would like to mention in passing also is uh, George Washington Bacon was killed on Valentine's Day in Angola that that year. 
who was somebody I did a lot of research on. He, uh, he's, he was American Special Forces, and there's disputes to this day about whether or not he may have been working for the CIA when he was killed. Um, well, I spoke with him, and he, he was very, very easy to talk to. Mm -hmm. uh, a very knowledgeable guy. Um, and I think, like most of the Americans out there, he, he just wanted to have a, a buzz at it. But I, I think somewhere along the line, I think it was maybe his father had been in the CIA. Okay. Yeah, I think I think that's accurate. And and Bacon did work for the CIA in Laos um, previously, um, but to this day, no one really can say. Um, but I, I did want to push a little bit forward after Angola. The, you, there was the, of course, the dissolution of of Fenla, and you left Angola. Um, but then you found yourself back in Africa in Rhodesia, and can you tell us a little bit about how you came back into the SAS a third time? Yeah, um, what happened was uh, I drifted about um, working in oil rigs and whatnot, and I, I said, "This is not for me." And I, I was going, I was on my way to join the Foreign Legion, and I got in London and I met a mate of mine. Uh, called Murray Davis. He was a reporter. And he said, Peter, stay away from there. He says, they're just cracking stones at the moment. And he says, it might not suit you. He says, get yourself to Rhodesia. Um, and um, you'll get this award going out there. And I think, I think you'd be more suited to that. So I finished up going to Rhodesia. And uh, I joined the SES. And this was, the war's heating up, and now we're talking, what, 1977, 78? Hey, right, uh, I got there uh, December 76. 76, uh, spent, okay. Spent the first, spent the first six months training. I had to go through basic training again, you know. <laughs> <laughs> at at, at age, uh, how old are you at this point, 35? I was 35, and, uh, but I enjoyed it. Yeah. Uh, the instructors were uh, decent guys. Um, they put a lot of hard work in there, and they, the, the system was a lot different from Britain. They'd started recruiting guys straight into the SES, and they said, if we've got them from when they're young, we can get them the way we want them, which mm -hmm. makes a bit of sense. Mm -hmm. and, uh, the, uh, and they produced the goods. Those, those young Rhodesian guys, they were, they were up for it the whole time. And is this where you met uh, our previous guest, uh, Mr. John Gardner? Uh, John, when I got there, John was in the process of leaving. Ah, okay. And uh, he'd finished his three years, and uh, we just passed a few words. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. uh, he, he went back out to Africa. and uh, Sorry, he went back out to Australia. And then uh, he found he wasn't fitting in there, so he came back. And he, he went up and joined the Salu Scouts from there mm -hmm. and went straight into the Salu Scouts rather than come back to the SAS. And in your book, you say that in the Rhodesian SAS is really where you saw the most combat. You were involved in some really serious operations, some, some parachute drops into combat. Could you tell yeah. us a little bit about some of those missions? Yeah, the, well, the, the one I always remember most was probably the most planned, the most presented, the most, the best briefing I've ever had to go on an operation. It was a, 
uh, it was Operation Dingo. Um, it was an attack on a terrorist base in the Mozambique. It was at a place called Chimoyo. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but I've got to mention this because I think I'd, I think if I didn't, I'd be doing the, the regiment about a disservice here. But the, the briefing that was given to us and the way the models were laid out, it was given to us by um, a guy called Scotty McCormack and uh, Brian Robinson, who was a squadron commander. An actual fact, the, the way they presented our briefing made you actually think you were on the ground. It was really motivating. Um, and as I say, they, they let us stand down and uh, they gave us a couple of beers and I said, I don't like the look of this. You know, the Redeemers are not into giving people free beer. They <laughs> <laughs> uh, gave us a couple of beers and then we got up early the next morning and I have never in my life seen such a sense of purpose. Everybody was helping each other, pulling their shoots on, helping them with their containers. You know that everybody was involved with each other. And then we, we emplaned um, and we flew up um, through Rhodesia and then went into Mozambique. We were 90 kilometres in there. And I, I remember saying to myself, you know, that as we were flying in, the flags started coming up at the aircraft. Now, this was a refugee camp, you know. Uh, <laughs> there was flak coming up from there. It was fairly heavy. And uh, I just said to myself, Peter, this is what you've been training for your whole life. You know, this is, this is fantastic. Um, I jumped out of the aircraft. I landed in a tree and my feet couldn't touch the ground. I was probably about... <laughs> 12 inches off the ground, I kept trying to break the uh, <laughs> to, to, to break the branch to get my feet on the ground. I eventually broke it. And uh, the next thing I got, I got opened up in with a, a chap and he was firing numerous rounds at me, you know, so I got myself in behind an ant hole and I managed to get my harness off. And uh, my buddy was a guy, uh, I'll call him the posh jock. He doesn't, he doesn't like people using his name. Um, and he pinned him down, and then I got up, and I heard the guy's uh, weapon, I heard the click of it, it's very distinct click when the AK is empty. Then he decided to surrender, I said, sorry, pal, you know. <laughs> yeah, and uh, we were there for two days. Um, we killed an awful, awful lot of gooks, and, um, and I say gooks, that was the terminology of the time. Um, it was, we were at it the whole time and the, everybody done their part. The pilots were outstanding. The men on the ground were outstanding. The RLI were outstanding. It was just, it was, it, from the start to the finish, that operation was extremely well planned. But they'd been thinking about it for 18 months. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, they had the time to think it through. So, on Thursday, we jumped in the, I can't remember, it was, I can't remember the day. Anyway, we were back in, I know it was Thursday night by the time we got in, and we were all ready, right, let's get to the pub, let's go and have a, a feed of beer, you know. And uh, they just went, this way, chaps. <laughs> and they stuck us in the cage again, and said, you jump again on Saturday morning. <laughs> and um, so again, they were very kind to us, they gave us two beers, and then they, on a Friday, we were all briefed up. 
And on the Saturday, we um, we tooled up again and uh, got into the aircraft. Then we went, uh, it was Operation Zulu 2, which is part of Optingo. Um, we then went and jumped into a, a camp um, called Tembe, which was over the other side of the the, the Kabora Barsa Dam. So we, we jumped in there and it was a sort of repeat performance. Everything was sort of well organised, you know. And we did a bit of depredation and then come home. When, uh, this start? time they allowed us to come home. <laughs> <laughs> they, didn't, they didn't send you right back to the cage to get you ready for oh, another We were excused the cage on the second. <laughs> <laughs> when, uh, so when you guys launched on Dingo, you jumped in to like 90 kilometers into Mozambique. What yeah. and, and you said the operation lasted two days. Was yeah. it? Was there a, a large force there that you engaged uh, at once, or were you hunting them down? There was only there wasn't that many. There was only ten thousand. <laughs> there was ten thousand in the place, and they were split into units. The part that we attacked had five thousand in it. We attacked it with one hundred and eighty men. But you know, don't forget, we had the assets, right? Uh, and those guys knew what they were doing, those pilots and the chopper pilots. And then how did you, uh, with 180 men, after two days of operations, how did you uh, exfil? We, we got together. Uh, everybody was chatting away to each other. Then we were choppered out uh, and back into Rhodesia and we got into Dakotas. And then we flew back to uh, New Salem Airport. And that's when we would get caged up for the first time. And you, you talk also about how the Rhodesian SAS had a lot of foreigners in it, but you felt like you never quite fit in, that they always had some sort of bias against you. Um, and, and you ended up... Yeah, I, I think I can explain that. That, that was mm -hmm. not, it wasn't to do with Rhodesians, it was to do with me. Mm -hmm. um, it, I, I don't think maybe my... I didn't quite understand them because they'd all been to sort of public schools and whatnot. Um, they were very proud of going to what school they went to. I went to Guineafield, I went to Plum Tree, you know. Um, I, didn't, I didn't quite understand it. So a lot of that, although I said it, a lot of that fault lies with me. And plus the fact I got off to a very bad start there. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I got myself locked up, you know, and... Um, it was possibly one of the most positive decisions I I made in my life. I walked into this uh, um, prison in Rhodesia. Well, it was a, an army a compound, and it was just completely surrounded in tin. And I looked, and I, I said, this is insanity. There was guys there shooting at the wall, screaming out the numbers, writing name. I went, and I said, and lucky enough, I met a, a guy who'd been in the British Army, who was a, one of the, um, the the people who worked there? I says, What's the quickest anybody's been out here? Out of this Nick? He says, Oh, there was a guy in 1965, he got out in 21 days. I says, I'm out in 21 days. It was totally, there was no question I was getting out of there, you know. Um, and they, it gave me time to, again to sort myself out. Um, I came away from there. It just says go back to the troop. And I actually caught up with lessons that I'd missed. I started 
the, the instructor started giving me lessons at night time and uh, we, we got on okay from there. We, and then I finished the course and went to the squadron. Mm-hmm. Peter, I, I feel like we've we've skipped over a little bit here. So, because there's no internet. Going, going, I know what you're going to say. Yeah, well, <laughs> but let's just kind of, your friend, the journalist in London or in England tells you that you need to go to Rhodesia. So you fly, do you, do you have any contact with anybody in Rhodesia or you just fly there? I knew, no, I knew one guy. He'd been in, uh, sorry, two. They'd been in the SAS and they'd been out there and they were in, they were involved with the security forces somewhere along the line, but they weren't in the SES. And they got me there, and uh, they introduced me to people. At first, they weren't going to take me. And then uh, there was an old SES guy there who was a who was a colonel by that time, uh, still involved in army circles. And he spoke to the recruiting office, and they, they took me in. Why weren't they going to take you originally? Because I'd been a mercenary. Okay. What they tell mercenary. Okay. And so, what was it? How did you end up in in the brig or or, or jail, uh, military jail, before you even finished your training? Right. Now I'm going to be brutal here, and I'm going to be honest. <laughs> but I won't mention any names. Okay. And there was a sergeant there who had a, a sort of American Marine background. And, you know, um, and he was fairly strict. And I couldn't quite understand, you know, being used to British SAS, the difference between the two, because the American Marines, they're a good outfit. There's no two ways about it. But, you know, that type of training works for them. And I couldn't quite understand it. You know, it's, you know terminology like, you eyeballing me, boy, you know, yeah. stuff like that. Yeah. And um, unbeknown to me, he told somebody that he was going to put me in jail. Now, this is a story I got. It may have not been true, but it was a story I got. And um, he said, uh, I'm going to put him in jail and I'll frighten the rest of the guys, you know. And uh, so we started marching up to the square and a couple of times he stopped us and he seemed to single me out on three occasions. And in the last occasion, we, we, we got around the corner, we were just shot in the square. And uh, the um, he pulled me again, and he went, you know, he said, you weren't calling out at the time. I says, I was. And he kept, I says, I said, you want boy, you know, and it was the one boy that was getting me, because I was older than him. And I said, I fucking was. And uh, and the next thing, he tried to take my weapon off me, and I, I just lost it, and I battered him. And, uh, you know, he, to be honest with you, I don't hold anything against the man, but he, his performance didn't match the words that were coming out of his mouth. Can you see that? Yeah. Yeah. It, your, uh, your mouth's writing checks that your ass can't cash. Well, definitely the case. Yeah. <laughs> and so when you decided that you were going to get out of this jail in 21 days, how did you how did you manage to do that? Like there there wasn't a, an, an obligatory sentence that you had to serve? Yes, it was 21 days, but you could, if you were a good boy, you get so many days off. Okay. And you could, you could get up to seven days off, but it had never been done since 1965. And I said, I've 
I said, I've got to get out of here. And it was probably extremely positive, you know. <laughs> Peter, I did it. Yeah. You had a uh, an amazing career in the Rhodesian SAS and some of these operations that you were on. Um, in the book, you talk about operating on the Klepper canoes and, and the lake and everything. I mean, there's amazing stuff in there. And then uh, working for special branch as well. But I, I wanted to, because we have you know limited time, I want to kind of get into the the dissolution of um, Rhodesia and you moved over to South Africa and joined up with their military. Yeah. I um I'd gone to work with the the special branch wing of the Solo Scouts and uh, I was in Bindura and we did did some lovely little ops here. We did some in South Africa, you know, went through South Africa mm-hmm. into Scotland, into Mozambique, um, and done a job there, and uh, and I, I enjoyed it and. What happened then, Rhodesia folded up and there was an open recruitment for South Africa. So I uh, I went down there. I resigned from the army because it was finished. And uh, I drove down there and I went to a place called Hallmark Building. And uh, I went to see them and they said uh, they wanted to send me to the Chief of Staff Intelligence. And I says, no. He said, well, how about 44 Parachute Brigade? Now, I didn't know anything about it. So I went there, um, and um, I met Colonel Breitenbach, and he spoke to him about forming a Pathfinder unit, and uh, he got on with it. I mean, Breitenbach was a legend in, in yeah. South Africa. Yeah, the father of South African Special Forces. Yeah, and 32 Battalion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so you end up in uh, their Pathfinder company, which was sort of something something of a foreign legion in the South African military, wasn't it? Yes. Well, what, basically what happened is what Breitenbach uh, put forward was that we need regular soldiers to get in there, whereas the, the South African army was a conscript army, and the, the, most of the regular soldiers went across to the reconnaissance commando. So he said, these foreigners are come in. You know, they're using the word foreigner. Um, they said, uh, well, well, why don't we do something with these guys? And I I just finished up the Sergeant Major there. So, yeah, you were their Sergeant Major, right? Yeah. And I, I, there's a very humorous story in the book about your men in Pathfinder Company bringing you Cokes and teas all the time. Um, you think you think because they're so nice at first, but actually they had an ulterior agenda. Yes. Basically what happened was uh, I used to get them up at half past four, start training at five, and then at night, as it got dark, it got dark at six o'clock there, I'd have them out doing night training. And I think I think it was just too much for them. And uh, and all of a sudden I just I didn't feel right. You know, when I was on muscle parade, I, I, I went to stand to attention, and my legs went from under me. So I said, I better, I better go and lie down. And the guys kept bringing me cups of tea, and I said, are you okay, Sergeant Major, are you okay? And what the bastards were doing, they were putting um, Valium into my tea. <laughs> and, uh, and I finally, through my, you know, I was another planet. 
and I could just hear one of them saying, no, that's a bit too much, that's a bit good, that's it, that, you've got it right now, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, why that? The, the, the Pathfinders were special people, you know, I um, I loved them, you know, they, 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 they were naughty, and to the South Africans it was insanity, because, you know, they, <laughs> the way these guys were behaving, you know. So, what was your response to them putting Valium in your tea? Did you did you smoke them? Did you did you lay some scunion down on them, or did you just laugh it off? And in actual fact, I found it funny. And if I they were the type of guys, if you punished them, they would still feel they had the upper hand. Can you see it? So I just left it. Yeah. Right. Right. But they still got up at half past four in the morning yeah. and finished at ten o'clock at night. <laughs> and with the with the Pathfinders, you also started seeing um, they sent you on operations into Angola, and I mean you're you're kind of coming full circle. You're back in Angola for the first time since '76. Yeah. What was it like going back there and doing ops with the Pathfinders? A, it was it was interesting. Um, basically, what happened? I never went in, in with the first group of Pathfinders that went in. I was taken back because another group of trainees had come in and they wanted me to train them. So I had to come back to the Republic and train them. But eventually went up there with the, the second group and uh, we did a couple of good jobs there. Mm -hmm. And what was the... the first, uh, first group, I, I had to go back to train people and run a selection course. What was the sort of composition and mission of the Pathfinders and how did that differ from the Rhodesian SAS? It was, it was much the same. It was just, it, it could be termed as a poor man's SES. They just didn't have the kit. Mm -hmm. They didn't have um, all the Gucci stuff. Uh, they had normal weapons, but I, I think the standards, the standards within it were as good as what I've saw. But then again, I've got to say that because I trained them. Um, uh, and they were, they were up for it the whole time. When it came to um, battle, they weren't afraid, you know. Yeah. Um, when I took the second group up there, uh, we got involved straight away. We just landed and they went, okay, there's an operation coming off. We want you to tack along as observers. And the, the observers who were there finished up leading the attack. Um, and it was, it was interesting because, you know, I looked at the men and I said, you know, this is, this is their day, you know. And uh, and I said, we've been training for this for months. We've got a task here to do. Let's go and earn our wages. And those guys were 100% in there. I mean, the amount of fire that came at us was probably, I can only go on what my grandfather said to me. It was probably on par with the First World War, but none of us got hit. It was just, the volume was extremely heavy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The guys me. The guys, the guys who were shooting at us may have got a wee bit nervous. <laughs> I don't know. What, yeah. what was the composition? Because Jack had mentioned that it, the Pathfinders were sort of like their own sort of foreign legion. Were, were most of the people who came to the Pathfinders, were they already seasoned veterans from one conflict or another? Yeah, well, most of them, most of them came from Rhodesia. There was an awful lot of RLI guys among them. There was a couple of scouts, Salute scouts. Uh, and there was uh, two SES guys. It was me and another chap called Jock Phillips. Um, and uh, as I say, it was it was a good unit. 
But again, the South Africans weren't used to handling um, regular soldiers. They were used to, um, it was probably like the British Army was in the, the 50s during the National Service days. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, don't do as I do, do as I say type of thing, mm -hmm. you know. Peter, the other thing I want to ask you about this time period was there are some reflections in your book um, where I get the impression that you started to change. Um, you talk about, you know, killing in Rhodesia uh, a, a terrorist at close range, um, being splattered with his blood in, in, in uh, Angola with the South Africans. You have this experience where one of your men has his foot blown off and you're holding him in his hand in your arms as he starts to as you start to cry. And so does he. Uh, that from being this very having this very tough upbringing in in Glasgow, having all these punch ups in the pub, I sense that there's something happening inside you personally here. Well, there was a, there was a softness inside me. The the guy I shot in Rhodesia, he just sprung up in front of me. He couldn't have been any any less than ten feet away, and I I hit him in the back of the head with a round, and it just the whole lot of him, whole lot of his head came back onto my shirt. And I could smell it all day long. Um, when I saw that kid lose his foot in Angola, I it was a track had been mined, and I I prodded my way into him, mm -hmm. and he put his arms around me, and he said, um, "Sergeant Major, I'm a Springbok athlete," and I really felt from because he his 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 leg his the bot his foot was exactly off. It was just all there was was an ankle there. Mm -hmm. um, and then all of a sudden, due to the explosion, there was some um, MPLA come along. There was a, there were um, Angolan regular soldiers by then, and they came along. So we bushwhacked a truck, and we killed a few on there. Um, and then we... We just carried on with it. We got the kid helicoptered out, um, and we just carried on with the operation. Mm -hmm. And how did this, all this combat and all this warfare, I mean, did it start to affect you at this time? Is you're, you're also becoming older, and you have a wife at this point. You have several children yourself. No, I had a, a wife who was very supportive of me. Mm -hmm. she, was, she was a fantastic woman. Um, and she, no matter what I did, she was always behind it. And I remember one day I was running through a camp and I just said to myself, you know, the great thing about Jane, they don't forget there's people getting shot all over the place. And I said, you know, that woman doesn't mess about in my head. I never had problems with her. Mm -hmm. You know, when I was in the bush, you get some guys, their missus, write some letters and the, the guys got upset about it. Right, I never right. ever had that. She was totally behind what I did. Mm -hmm. Where where did you meet her at? Like, at what point in your life did you meet her? And how, and how long have you been together? I met her in Rhodesia in 77. And uh, we just seemed to hit it off. Um, and we we seen each other for th three years. And um, we eventually got married before we left Rhodesia. So we'd by the time we got married, we'd been together about three years. And um, she came down to South Africa with me. And you uh, leave the South African military, um, embark in security contracting. And um, 
I don't know, there's there's an interesting line I thought in your book. Um, as much as you loved it down there, uh, when your son uses the sort of racial slur, and you said, "I don't know if I want my son to grow up to be this kind of person," and you, you went back to the UK. No, that, that wasn't the real reason. It was part of it. Uh-huh. Um, I've I've never been racist. I I worked with black troops a lot, and I I found them okay. I just uh, I felt that there was a system in place there, uh, and it wasn't for me to question it. I could have my opinion out, but you know, the it was legislated in that country, uh, and I wouldn't say. I approved of it. It'd be wrong to say that. Um, it was just it's the way things were at that time. Mm-hmm. It's something that was well-meaning, and it turned out to be well. It wasn't in, in the end, you know. I, right. Um, but the, the main the, the thing is eventually um, the country went back. The people got control of it. The black people. And from what I hear, they're not doing too good a job there. But then again, they've got to learn like everybody else. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that the other thing that I really wanted to get into here with you was when you get back to the UK, you have a friend from Angola approach you with a a special job. (laughs) And if we could start to talk about that. Now, can you enlighten me there? Uh, uh, m- m- Mr. Uh, Dave Tompkins. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Dave came up to see me, and uh, he said, I've got something in the pipeline. And I says, what is it? He says, I've got a job out in, uh, out in Columbia. I said, count me in. You know, there was, I've always got on with Dave, you know. And uh, we moved on from there. We flew out to Columbia. Uh, we met some people, and uh, you know the rest in my book. You know, yeah. I, I mean, you get down to Columbia. It sounds like on the uh, the first try, things didn't work out so well. Uh, no, they didn't because they couldn't make up their mind what they were doing. Mm-hmm. Oh, and uh, we trained guys, and the idea was to attack a communist base at a place called Casa Verde which was uh, in, a, in an area called the Sumer Pass. And uh, we trained them. And then it was basically what happened. The communists were terrorizing everybody and taking the... It was a diamond area. Mm-hmm. And they were, you know, taxing the, the diamond donor, diamond mine owners. And, uh, well, that's the story we were told. But you never known Colombia. Mm-hmm. I mean, the whole time... Colombians, uh, Colombian officers was. So, you know, there was no reason to question it. Um, and, you know, we had never any trouble getting through the airport. They were always there to walk us through. Um, and then we eventually, they just said, it's not going to work. They paid us off and went back. I, I can't remember how long we were there. It was quite a few months. There, there was also some bait and switch going on that you were ostensibly working for Colombian army officers, but actually working for somebody else that you didn't know at first. They they wanted this, you to... This this was the case. Now, when I spoke to the, the guy on it, it stemmed back to the 60s, and there was an, an era in Colombia called La Villienza, 
and they'd got a group of men just to sort this problem out. And it, they were fairly ruthless, and they, they, it was they wanted to have a sort of a rerun of this. Now, the intelligence community, now again, I can only say what I've worked out and what people have told me. The intelligence community couldn't get the money to do these operations. So who do, who's got the money in Colombia? The drugs people. So they, they, they were financed by the drugs people to carry out the operation. Um, that was on the first one. And uh, and we, we they paid us off and we came back and it was uneventful the whole trip. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, there is also a bait and switch with the target itself, right? Like first it was one target, but then, oh, actually, could you hit this one next door? Yeah, yeah. Um, they wanted this. Uh, first of all, it started, we were going to hit one house. Mm-hmm. Then it was a series of houses. Then we found out there was a base. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, I said, it's looking a bit hairy. And the place was that high, a loaded helicopter wouldn't have got up there. Yeah. So um, we decided at one stage to drop off a bit low and then walk up the rest of the way. Um, it'd be wrong to say we were duped. We went out there. We knew there was going to be some skullduggery about it. Right, right, right. And we accepted that. So there's no use trying to whitewash over it. It was the case. There was um, the intelligence uh, community within the army was getting money from the drugs people to finance against the other drugs people, uh, to finance a war against them. The the idea being, eventually, they start fighting with each other, and then the whole problem would be solved by them. They'd kill each other off, Mm -hmm. but it never worked out that way. So this whole thing, yeah, it, it never really, it fails to materialize and ever get off the ground. So you, you guys, all the mercenaries uh, go back to the UK. Some time goes by, and Mr. Tompkins shows up at your door a second time. Yes, he did. <laughs> what's, what's his story now? The story was, he came, we sat down, um, and uh, he explained that... Um, a group of men wanted Pablo Escobar eliminated. And uh, I said, well, okay, let's go for it. And uh, so Dave and I flew out there and we met the businessmen. Businessmen. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, um, and he says, we, we want you to, you know, terminate this guy. So we said, it's going to cost money. There's going to be salaries, we're going to need weapons, we're going to need equipment, we're going to need helicopters. And they produced everything that we needed. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, and uh, it was it was well organized from their side. Anything we asked for, we got it. And when the, the weapons turned up, I mean, they were brand new, they hadn't been used. They'd been brought into Colombia inside washing machines, you know, broken down. And come in those washing machines. <laughs> it, so, so many of these mercenary operations around the world are—they're half-assed. You know, they're not put together the right way. But this one, like, there were—they brought you helicopters, they brought you quality weapons and kit. I mean, you had professionals um, who had previous combat experience on your team. I mean, this was like the real deal. 
it was, you know, we trained, we trained for 11 weeks to assassinate one person. Mm-hmm. Now, I've been in the military quite a while, and we never ever had that amount of time. Every day, we went out and trained on it. Okay, right, I'm not in charge, you're in charge. Run the show from your side. Okay, and we just change them around every day. So as every man knew exactly what was going on, and they knew what all the other men were doing. It wasn't a load of half-assed squaddies turning up there, totally untrained, like you see in the movies. Helicopters coming from all different um, directions. Sylvester Stallone's in one, and Schwarzenegger's in the other, and they just go into the jungle and terminate everybody. It wasn't like that. We trained for it. Yeah. And when you say train, I, I assume that you mean running rehearsals, right? And so did you guys have good intel intelligence on the location you'd be hitting and things like that? Oh, yeah. I flew I flew over uh, the place three or four times and I looked at it, you know, and I, I, was, I was a bit wary at first. And then when I saw the actual place, I said, this is tailor made for us, you know, um, it's our type of thing. So uh, I... The men didn't know where it was at this time. We didn't want to leak. And um, so we just trained on it and uh, we we drew a house out in the ground and we'd all practice, you know, white one, white two. And we had the whole place colour-coded and numbered. Um, so everybody had, had a, a term at being the guy in charge, can you see, it in case anything went wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, we all sat down with what we call a Chinese parliament in the SES. We'd sit down, right, what happens if somebody gets wounded? Action on. What do we do? We've got to get them out. How are we going to get them out? Okay, there's an airstrip up there. Let's have a caravan stationed up there waiting to take any wounded out. Um, Stuff like that. You know, it was really interesting. And and the the men had an awful lot of input there. They put an awful lot into it. Could you tell us a little bit um, in basics, you know, what what your plan was that you had developed, how this was going to go down? Basically what happened, we'd have, we'd have a, a tell start up. That was our communications that, that for everybody was on the ground. We had a caravan stationed, an airstrip, further up about six or seven kilometers away. Uh, and we had two helicopters to do the assault. Um, and the plan was to fly up there, fly as low as we could, because all the all the guys who operated the radar there were on the payroll to Pablo Escobar, mm-hmm. although they were army guys. So the idea was to fly up low, then go over the top of the mountain, come down low again, and uh, and go and assault the place. And what what would be the actions on the objective once you hit the, his compound? The, the the action on the objective was there'd be a fire team would land and they would be the cover team. And the, the next team that came in were the assault team. And they would they would carry on clearing the houses as they went along. I was in the, the, the helicopter above coordinating everything. We all had a, the top of our hats. We all, all had uh, yellow crosses on them so that I could see who was what on the ground. And we we practiced clearing the way through the whole lot. And it was it wasn't it wasn't some half arse thing. I, I I've done a lot of training with men and I have never seen yeah. as much training for done. We we did we did dress rehearsals, full dress rehearsals, uh, 
full dress rehearsals with live ammunition and actually attacking the place. And when so it, it wasn't just a a load of guys chancing their luck. Right. And what actually what actually happened is a mountain got in the way. You talk in the book about how when you when you got the green light and they told you to execute the mission, how you gathered the men up for a little speech and, and how proud you really were of all of them that they had drilled so hard and they were so prepared for this operation. They were honestly they were, they'd really given it everything. Mm-hmm. Um and I felt that they'd done an awful lot for me. Uh and that they just kept on and, and no matter what I suggested it was done. Um if there was any chuntering, I never heard it. Yeah. But th- when I got there, I got them round. I said, this is it, guys. And everybody was up for it. <laughs> it wasn't guys I'm having second thoughts here, you know. Yeah. Now, Pablo Escobar wasn't just some dude. Like, he had his own army. <laughs> yeah. What yeah. H- What kind of resistance and opposition were you guys estimating or planning at the right. house? We- he had he was reputed to have between sixty and eighty men uh, guards. We assumed that half of them would be off shift, and the other half would be doing the day shift. Can you see it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we had enough ammunition there to kill between two and three thousand men. Mm-hmm. And the way, don't forget, we'd been in Rhodesia and South Africa. We'd fought against the odds before, mm-hmm. and it's all right watching a movie and seeing these guys were highly skilled. They were highly trained killers, yes. They weren't highly trained soldiers. Mm-hmm. They were different things. Yeah, yeah. And then can you tell us about, you boarded the helicopters that day, took off, heading towards Escobar's compound. What happened? Well, on the way up there, I've never felt, I really felt at peace. You know, I was thinking the whole time, did I do enough to give these men a fair deal? Did I enough do enough? that these men will do this operation and come back. And I I, 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 I felt I'd done enough. Um, and then we turned in, we, I, I, we flew over a town called Manizales, and then we turned right to go over the top of the Andes. And then I noticed there was an awful lot of low cloud. There was two helicopters. The other guy went as high as he could. I noticed he was climbing right up. And the pilot we had was a younger guy, and he just carried on. I said, you must know what he's doing here. And uh, the next thing, we were in cloud. And I, 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 lucky enough, I turned around to Dave Tompkins and the guys in the back. I says, get yourself in the crash position. And that's when we hit the trees. <laughs> I, through not having my seatbelt on, I was thrown to the one side, and the blade of the helicopter came past me and hit the pilot. And uh, the chopper turned upside down. Mm. Uh, we bounced through the trees a couple of times and landed. And it's funny how things you were taught in the army, you never forget them. The helicopter was turning around and the blades were spinning, you know, and the, 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 the tail rotor was spinning. And I said to the guy, sit where you are until the blades stop. Because there's no use getting out of the helicopter, you're going to get chopped up. Yeah. So when the blades chopped, um, get up. Um, we got out of the helicopter and I, I, there was a hole about 10 feet deep and the helicopter was in it and I climbed up and Dave Tompkins got down and he tried, Dave tried to put a drip in him and then I came down and I said um, I said to Dave, I says pass me down the 
a drip and I couldn't get a drip and it was you know he, he, he was just he was just he went a bluish colour and I went all I can do is make this man's life a bit less painful for when he dies you know so I pumped some morphine into him and he just drifted away mm. um, it was only then after he died did I realise that, that I'd injured his myself I was too busy working on him and Dave and um, one of the guys pulled me up and I just, my whole, every bone in my body was aching and they pulled me onto a little ledge um, and uh, I lay there for three days. While Dave and uh, another mercenary went to go get help, right? Yeah. It was at this time that I realized I'd broken a rule. I should have sent one guy down and kept one guy with me. Um, but I, I, somehow I just said go, but I, 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 wasn't, I wasn't myself. Yeah, right, right. Dave, Dave got a load of bandages and whatnot, and it was cold up there. So he, he put all the bandages inside my jacket to try and keep me warm, you know, any medical stuff we had. And I just lay in this ledge. I'd lost my watch in the crash. Um, and then I started feeling hungry and I, I found a can of beans and uh, I had a little block of hexamine in my escape bag and I, this can of beans was there as well. And, um, you know, I cooked it and I ate the beans and, uh, as I say, I just lay there and it was, it, the pain was excruciating. And it was funny, you know, I lay there and, um, you know, I'm a Catholic. I had a Catholic upbringing and I was trying to make a deal with God. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I said, God, you know, if you get me out of this one, I'll try and be a good boy. I know I've let you down my lungs, okay? You know, <laughs> you know, try to do a deal like I'm talking to you. I'm not talking to my higher power. Anyway, I, um, I lay there and eventually I heard guys coming and I, I didn't know whether they were baddies or goodies. And I just got myself ready for the worse. And uh, I said, well, you know, again, the, the old Catholic prayers came out. I said, you know, if I'm going to die here, let me do it with a bit of honour. So I, I decided that, you know, I'd take as many as I could with me. Because I knew if they got hold of me, I was going to die a terrible death. Yeah. But fortunately for me, it was guys who were coming to find me. But I didn't know that. They were yeah. speaking in Spanish. Um. So um, as a guy came up to me, he didn't see me. I was just lying there, tucked in behind a bush, and I stuck my weapon in his stomach. And he took, his hands went up in the air. He went, Ricardo, Ricardo, Ricardo. And uh, they eventually got a hold of him and decided to take me down. And what they did is chopped down a tree and uh, cleared all the, the branches off. They were very competent. They just sliced this tree down. They tied me to the tree and lowered me down each re-entrance and lowered me down each waterfall as we came along, you know. And it was a, it was painful. And uh, and I said, what what wonderful men these are. And we get down to the bottom. And uh, we lay there for the night. And uh, and I'd been singing their praises. 
all of a sudden they had my skate bag and they were robbing it. <laughs> and to skate money in there and they were split well. <laughs> how uh, how injured were you? What what had happened? I had four ribs uh, broken at the front and one side, four on the other side and the, the opposite side. And I'd, you know what happens when you crash with an aircraft or a helicopter? You, you stand still with the crash. And your your organs inside go and smash against your ribs. It's called stove chest. I had it wasn't as bad as it, it. It can kill you, but I had it fairly bad, but not enough to to do me in. Mm-hmm. And it, it was immense. Uh, the pain was immense. It was a uh, it was an experience. Yeah, and you know it was interesting that again this was not like many of the mercenary operations out there. Like your employers actually did get you a helicopter and got you out of there and got you medical treatment. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, there's pictures there where I was, I mean, I, I, I was bedded down for, I think, the best part of a couple of weeks, you know. And I, I recovered fairly well, you know. And the men were bringing me tea and apples, but the tea didn't have any value. No value. I remember at this time, you know. You, you probably wanted it this time, though. But I had probably, I probably needed it. Yeah. So did they, obviously this was a tragic event and, uh, you know, but did they scrub the mission? Did they try to push it off, push it forward? No, no, we, um, well, it was mainly David was pushing it. He said, right, we're going to go back again. And uh, so by this time, a reporter called James Adams had got a hold of the story. Uh, Dave reckons he, he, he was a spook, and that's how he got hold of it, and he was working for the Times. What truth there isn't, I don't know, but Dave's pretty clued up in all these sorts of things, you know. Um, we met him, and we struck a deal with him. Can you let us do the job? You know, this is before we kicked off. Can you let us do the job, and uh, you can have the exclusive at the end of it, you know? Yeah. We'd... we'd with tons of mini problems. One of the guys, um, his bottle went, and he came and seen me. Uh, I was very disappointed in him. Um, I said, well, rather than have him here, he's only going to lower morale. So I got him out. The guys went, he's a coward. You know? And the first thing he did when he got back to Australia, where he came from, straight to the television, and sold the story. I mean... Tell what more he stories. He, he, he ratted on his mates. Yeah. And I couldn't, I couldn't understand it, you know? Yeah. Peter, that, that's kind of where your book, No Mean Soldier, ends. I, hope, I really hope people will go and read it. Well, but I would like to hear um, what adventures you may or may not have had since the, where the book ends around 1990. There's also Beyond No Mean Soldier, mm-hmm. right? Another book. And then you also wrote... Uh, uh, Fighting man, oh, uh, Macaulay's uh, fighting manual, fighting manual, yeah, yeah, uh, the definitive soldier's handbook. Yeah, well, I, what I did is I took, I took the tactics that we used in Africa, and I applied them to British tactics, and I got somewhere in between, and I, I, I put it on paper, and um, it sold fairly well. Beyond no means soldier. What I did, attempted to do there was um, 
was to explain a few things that I hadn't done in the first book. It, it could have almost, you know, it's, I repeated a lot of the stories again, but I explained certain things. Mm -hmm. And I remember I had an awful lot of criticism at one stage. You know, who does he think he is? No mean soldier. And I thought I'd enlighten him on it. And, you know, St. Paul, it came from St. Paul, who was captured by the Romans. And uh, they said, who are you? He says, I'm Paul, a citizen of Tarsus, no mean city. And in 1935, two guys wrote a book in Glasgow, and they called Glasgow no mean city. And that, it stuck to Glasgow, the name. And basically what I was saying, I explained in the book, that all I was saying was I was a soldier from Glasgow. Nothing to do with being mean or anything yeah, like that. Right. It was to do with where I came from. And I, I thought I'd put things like that right. Um, and, you know, there's an awful lot of critics out there who love drinking a glass of lager and not having done a great deal herself. Uh -huh. um, and they, they feel they've got an awful lot to say. And I thought it may silence a few of them because some of them can be fairly caustic, you know. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's just, it's a public in general, you know, but the majority of people um, enjoyed my book. I, you know, the, the ratings were fairly high. But there was the odd person. Uh, one guy complained about uh, Michael Easy's fighting manual. There wasn't enough pictures in it. <laughs> you know, soldier removal that, part two and soldier removal part I, one, like some a soldier of fortune that magazine. Was, you know? That was probably a marine. There was probably a marine, <laughs> to be honest with you. I mean, <laughs> the, you know. We're, so, P Peter, where since, since no mean soldier? Well, where, what have you been up to in life? Where have you been? I, I see some of the pictures of you and your children who are grown up now. It looks like you have a, a very different type of life. Um, I think. There was a documentary made on me, and I, I, it made out because of my experience on the on the mountain in Colombia mm -hmm. that I'd come to God. I mean, I I was brought up a Roman Catholic, and it was always there. If I could get to mass, I went. Uh, but you know, it, it wasn't a hallelujah, praise the Lord. A bolt of lightning came out of the sky, right. and all of a sudden, you've got a changed man on your hands. Right. I feel that I never started growing up till I was in my fifties, and things started to come together then, and I started to understand people more, um, and I found out that I could look at things and solve a problem without violence, mm -hmm. um, and to explain my point of view rather than fight about it, you know. Mm -hmm. um, it was a fantastic time. And what I always say, there's a number of things I do say, is the judge that sent me to prison, I'd shake his hand because he gave me time to think. The incident on the, on the mountain, it gave me more time to think. When I came out, I, um, I've never actually recovered from the injuries. So I spent, I, I couldn't do the things I used to do. Um, and uh, I started, I started the, first of all, I started going back to church. And it was nothing to do. It was just I felt it was time to go back. And um, and I, I started enjoying it. It became a part of my life. And I, um, 
I'm not a hallelujah, praise the Lord type. You know, I'm not a member of the God Squad. Um, <laughs> what, what, a, what I feel it's given me guidance, an element of guidance uh, through my behaviour. Um, and, you know, looking at a thing first and questioning it within myself before I act on it. And it's, it's, been, it's been fantastic. And now, how I look at it is, all the trouble I was in when I was younger, all the things I did in the, the army, if I hadn't done those things, I wouldn't be here today mm-hmm. right. enjoying the life the way I do it. Yeah. The way I do it. It's fantastic. Peter, was um, there... Uh, uh, please, yeah. go ahead. No, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, you go on. I, I was... There are a couple of questions. One, was there... I was, you know... People tried to play it up like there was a, a thunderbolt kind of moment, but was there a moment when you realized that I can solve things by words and not my fists? Like, was there? Was there? Did it? Did it happen gradually over time, or was there a moment when it occurred to you that there was a different way to go about things? It, it just grew on me gradually. So, an actual fight. I went to an Irish uh, funeral one day. And everybody, once the alcohol started flowing, everybody, everybody started growling and snarling at each other. And I went, I said, I don't need this. And I can remember, I was drinking um, uh, Jameson's whiskey in a Ballygown water. I can actually remember the drink. And I just put it down. And I said, it's over. It's over. And I haven't touched a drink since. That was nine years ago. Wow. It, it was nothing to do with the church. It was to do with a, a situation I was in. Yeah. But what, what did, when I stopped drinking, it, you know, it left a, a, a clear patch uh, where I could think about things that I never thought about before because I, 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 I enjoyed being in the pub, you know, being with my mates and sinking a few beers and laughing and joking. But, you know, the when I stopped drinking, everything it just left... It left, it left me where I, I could think a lot clearer, a lot better. I decided to go back to church. And uh, and that's it. It was, you know, it would be wrong for me to start talking like Jimmy Swaggart or one of these preachers, you know. I, I mean, I've never had that experience. Um, but um, as I say, for me, it worked out. I, um, I look back at my life now, I, I wasn't a good husband. I wasn't a good father. I tried. I tried to be a good father. But uh, as a husband, I, I, I don't think I, I don't think I made the grade, I'll be honest with you. Yeah. I, I, I think if I had to get married now at 79 years old, I think I'd be able to handle it a bit better. <laughs> so for any women out there who are looking to... Uh, to meet a, a distinguished man with a, with a world of experience. Who goes to Mass. Yeah. And, and you know, is working on, you know, the idea of being a better husband. There you go. When, when you, you know, you said that the injuries from the mountain, you know, kind of drove you out of that life, that you couldn't do it anymore, or yeah. at least those types of things. Was that a difficult sort of transition for you to make, you know, from one identity to a new identity? No, it couldn't because the decision had been made for me. I couldn't okay. move. And uh, I accepted it. 
I mean, I'd had a parachute accident before I I left South Africa, and my right leg was hanging off, and they put it together again. And what happened when I had that crash? It just aggravated every break, everything that happened to me over the years. Yeah. Um. Yeah, so it was a good a good life. I wouldn't have changed it for nothing. Yeah. Um, so I want to tell people, you know, we have a uh, no mean soldier. Now, here's, yeah. I, I don't know if you're aware of this, but on Amazon, uh, no mean soldier apparently is not in reprint, uh, because the hardcover goes for 147 and the paper it's, goes it, for it's on, um, Peter uh, has a website that he's selling the book through. What's your website, Peter? It's www.petermichaelese.com. There you go. So go there, and I really encourage people to check out No Mean Soldier. I, I read a lot of these books, Peter, for this podcast and just for my own enjoyment. This was one of the really good ones. Um, just so many different experiences in here, and I really encourage people to go and check it out for themselves. Uh, before we get going, Peter, um, is there anything else you want the audience to know? Anything else you'd like to say? I mean, there was also that documentary recently made about the Escobar mission. Yeah. Uh, I think the do the documentary was it was well made. It was made by a, the director was a guy called Dave Whitney, who he could be demanding at times, but I could see his point of view. And I think, in general, he turned out not. A, it was pretty good documentary, and his his ratings in Scotland were very high. But that's where I come from. Can you see it? <laughs> now, where if people wanted to see that documentary, do you know where they can find it right now? It's going to come on to Netflix shortly. Okay, uh, awesome. You can get on the, at the moment, it's on BBC iPlayer. Awesome. So okay. you, can it, you can get it there in the States, but it, it will be going on to Netflix eventually. Okay, so this is important because if you do go to Amazon, uh, the book is very expensive. If you go to Peter's website, uh, you get it for a signed copy uh, for £40. Uh, and also his other books, which are available on Amazon, uh, one in Kindle. I know the uh, Beyond No Mean Soldier is available on Kindle, um, and that's on Amazon. And then your fighting manual is also available on Amazon. Now, that's 125 Are those both available on your, uh, on your website also? No, they're not. Okay. Uh, we've been uh, trying to get a hold of the people to organize that can have a reprint okay all right well peter thank you so much for joining us tonight this has been an amazing interview i know we covered a lot of ground in a short time um but i really appreciate you taking some time out of your uh friday evening to and talk we know to it's us. late there for you so, really late you know we don't want to keep you too long because we just yeah, when you when you get to my age i should be in bed now <laughs> <laughs> so Everybody out there, um, our next episode uh, is actually it's going to be Saturday tomorrow. Uh, we're going to have Jessica Donati, a uh, reporter, the author of Eagle Down. She's going to be here in studio. We'll be talking to her. Really looking forward to it. Um, please make sure to subscribe to the channel. Join us on Patreon if you want to support us. Uh, our, we have a new Instagram at, at the.team.house on instagram yeah. uh peter yeah. uh for people who want to find you you have your website uh peter um is there any place else that they can follow you or are you big on social media no, that's, that's the best way to get a hold of me and that's uh 
an, an agent handles it for me and he passes his stuff on to me. He he filters out certain parts okay, of it sure. that he thinks are not suitable and then passes the rest on to me. Okay. And I never feel to answer them. So there you go. There's how you can get in touch with Peter. Yeah. So thank you. Uh, thank you. Thank so you, much Peter. For your time. Thank you, Dee, for producing. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.